morning. Ooh, there it is. All right, like you said, I'm from Mississippi, and in Mississippi, when someone says good morning, you say it back, good morning. morning. You in the back didn't say it, and I'm going to remember that, so grand with a mask, it's hard to really tell. So we're going to be in Exodus 2, Uh, if you want to go ahead and turn there, Exodus 2, we'll start in verses 23, we'll go through 3.12. I'm in a new Bible, and it's going to give me some issues, so forgive me ahead of time. It's a cool Simeon Trust Bible. So like uh, Doug mentioned, I'm Mary, Debbie Walker's little sister, Kelsey, and nine months ago, we had a baby, and he is 20 pounds of adorable, chunky, eight-tooth joy. But I've aged like 10 years in the last nine months. I woke up with my hip hurting this morning, and I'm 26 years old. So young parents, just want to encourage you with that somehow. Uh, Press on. Um, But... Over the summer, I tried to lean into my status as a dad, and I feel like as a rite of passage, we just have to like read books about World War II and submarines and stuff like that. So I read a book called Ghost Soldiers by Hampton Sides, and in that story, he masterfully retells this horrific story of POWs in a place called Cabana Tawan Camp in the Philippines in World War II. You may have heard about the Bataan Death March, Well, some of the last survivors of that event were in that camp. And the book isn't just like a survival story of prisoners of war. It's a story about one of the greatest rescue operations in U.S. military history. And in that sense, it's actually an exodus story. The POWs languished and many died for three years. And while they were there, they felt forgotten and abandoned by their countrymen. The shame of being captured just got worse and worse, and they wondered if the army was just going to pass them by and forget about them. And they didn't know that there was a daring operation underway to bust them out of camp. And there was nothing they could do to free themselves. They just had to wait. In intense suffering like that, or all the way down to the ordinary pressures and stresses we feel in our lives, it is so easy over time, under pressure, to forget God's promises. Pain makes us forget the truth about who we are and who he is. Those POWs, they were still American and British and allied soldiers. They were still a part of that big institution, but they felt forgotten, and they were no longer remembering who they were despite their circumstances. So they were helpless and afflicted and growing more cynical each day. Now, Moses writes the book of Exodus to remind God's people who they are and where they came from and what God did for them. So Moses points them back to these miserable dark days when they were enslaved in Egypt, languishing, and all hope seemed lost. The cries of the people are multiplying, and the promises to Abraham appear to be hanging by a thread. So where is God in their worst suffering? Or more specifically, where is God in our worst suffering today? And we're going to explore some of those questions as we walk through this passage. So let's go ahead and read it. And we'll begin in verse 23 of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham With Isaac and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. We'll stop right there. So 
our, my main idea for our time together today is this. Don't forget God remembers, reveals, and rescues. And those will be our three points too. They all start with an R, extra points for that. Don't forget God remembers, reveals, and rescues. And first, in the text we just read, don't forget God remembers. Now, this section is a shift in the book of Exodus. So the curtain is pulled back, and we, the audience, find out what the characters in Egypt don't know yet. So we see that the people of God are suffering, they're crying out, and their cries ascend to God. And meanwhile, the king of Egypt died, and nothing's changing. Things are just getting worse. Uh, Verse 23, as you probably noticed, emphasizes the groaning and crying out. But then in verses 24 through 25, we zoom back out, and we see the one listening in heaven. What we find out about God in those verses drives the rest of the story forward. So far, you've seen Israel increase in the land and suffer in it. Egypt oppressed them in slavery, tried to murder their children. And the one character who seemed like he could save them murdered an Egyptian and had to flee for his own life. Their suffering has gone on, and they seem to have nowhere else to turn, so they cry out. Now, just one question. In your suffering, does it become difficult to pray to the Father? Does it become hard to, when pain increases in your life, to turn to him with faith? For some of us, it's, it's, it's an either or. Either suffering will humble you and prayer will become like breathing to you. It's the main thing you do all the time. Or suffering will harden you. It'll make your heart bitter and make it difficult to look upward. Suffering makes it difficult to remember God's promises. But what you've seen in this series so far is how God is the whole time keeping his promise to Abraham. They just can't see it. He rules over kings and nations. He subverts the king of Egypt through midwives that are actually remembered by name and that Pharaoh has forgotten the history. So although the picture is dark at this point, God hasn't left the canvas behind. He's still painting his masterpiece, but we're right in the middle of it in the darkness. So you as a Christian, you need to hear the words of verses 24 and 25 very carefully. This is true on the darkest day of your life. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So no matter what you're feeling or facing today, God hears your groaning, and God sees. He knows. Your prayers aren't just hitting the ceiling, although it feels like it. He hears, and he sees, and he knows. Now, for some of you, that sounds even worse. I'm in pain, I'm in trouble, God sees, and nothing changes. How is it good news for him to see and hear when I am still living through darkness? For the suffering people of God in Egypt, and for us here today, how can you take hope in the God who sees and hears when you're still in pain? When we get those phone calls that a baby stopped breathing, that a storm is heading your loved one's way, in a world like this, How can it be good for God to see and hear? Well, friends, our hope is that the God who sees and hears remembers his covenant. It's good news that he sees and hears because he remembers his promises and he will keep them. His promises are the backbone of our faith and he will not fail to keep them. He's not just like a photographer in the distance snapping pictures and not doing anything. 
He's not just watching with cool indifference as you languished. No. The God who sees and hears will remember, and that is good news because it means he will act. He's going to act. So, so now, even though Israel's enslaved, God is keeping his promise. They're becoming a great nation. And one day they are going to possess the land that Abraham walked on. And although Moses is on the run, Yahweh's plan is still unfolding right here. So don't judge how God keeps his promises in the middle of the action. That's not the time. Don't do that. The curtain hasn't dropped. The story's not over. He's still working in your life. It's good news that God sees and hears because he's the covenant-keeping God who gets glory in keeping his promise to you. All right. So now second, don't forget God reveals. Don't forget God reveals. So let's pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. All right, so if you're still wearing your shoes, I've already messed it up. I'm on holy ground. Anyway, that was supposed to be more funny than that, but (laughs) tough crowd. So, this is the burning bush story. You grew up hearing about it in uh, Sunday school and stuff. This is like the weird moment in Exodus, one of the many, rather. It's easy to get lost in the strangeness of this situation. Like, I don't think you should expect to meet God in a burning tree the next time a wildfire comes through. That would be terrible. I don't think that... Uh, it actually does well to think too much about, well, what does it actually mean that he appeared in this bush? We really don't know. But what is true is that despite the weirdness, God came down and revealed himself there. That's what's more amazing. Not that this bush was burning and not consumed. The Lord spoke out of it. In response to our cries and our pain, our Father who hears, he reveals himself. He comes down. C.S. Lewis wrote that God whispers in our comforts, but he shouts in our pain. Moses is a stranger in a strange land. He's far from his people. He's been cast out by his past. And he's just leading a flock of sheep, kind of unassuming, not realizing that he's near the mountain of God that should have sent off some red flags in his mind. He was about to meet God. So Moses as a shepherd fits into this bigger pattern of God working through shepherds in Scripture. So he leads his flock to this mountain, and that looks a lot like what he'll do later with Israel. And then God speaks out of it. So I can't explain much about verse 1 and Horeb and Jethro or the bush, but let's look at verse 2 again. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. We'll keep going. Moses said, I'll turn to look, verse 4. When God saw that he turned aside, he called out, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Now, 
this is another moment that fits into a bigger theme going on in the Bible. So in the same way that Moses responds, here I am, that's what Abraham did back in Genesis 22, when God said, Abraham, Abraham, he was about to sacrifice Isaac. Or in Genesis 46, God called out in a vision, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. And this is going to keep happening after this with Isaiah and Ezekiel and other prophets. God will speak the servant's name, Moses, Moses, here I am. So God told Jacob that he would make him into a great nation in Egypt and bring him back. And now Moses is this next great figure in this big story. It's now the God, he's now the God of Moses. The Lord was with Abraham and Jacob, and through this encounter, he's now going to go with Moses, send his presence with him. Now the scene is what becomes known as a theophany in the Bible, and these are these huge moments where God comes down and there's fire, there's a voice. Later next to this, the whole mountain's going to shake and there's going to be lightning and thunder. So this isn't just an amusing kid story. It's actually horrifying. It's terrifying what he's seeing. The fabric of creation is kind of falling apart because the maker of heaven and earth is right there. And then, you know, the weird detail I made a joke about, Moses is told to remove his sandals from his feet for the place where he's standing is holy ground. Now, even though this is before the Mosaic law, obviously, there's still this pattern of removing the unclean from the holy God's presence. That happens in Genesis a few times. And here now, the holy God is here, and anything unclean has to be taken out of his presence. Moses the shepherd had all kinds of junk on his feet from where he'd been walking, and that has to go. And then he turns and looks down, away from God. He's terrified to look at him. We don't need to talk about this for too long, but Moses is showing a right fear of the Lord here. A right fear in God's holy presence. I can't look at you. I have to hide my face. Now, as you guys move on after this week, you'll see that I think Moses starts to fear something else later as he talks to God. But for right now, he's responding exactly as he ought to, humbled before the holy God. How do you respond to God? How do you approach him when you pray or when you read or when you gather here? Is it just casual? Is it just easy? I mean, we don't have to, like, make sacrifices and throw blood all around the room. Thank the Lord for that. But all those markers, since we don't need them anymore, it's easy to just rush into his presence and forget who you're dealing with. He's the holy God, and we should fear him. Now, look at what the Lord says. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is the God of the covenant, and he's revealing himself, and in response to pain and suffering, he's telling the servant, who he is. And this is God's pattern. In response to suffering, he comes down and reveals himself. Think about Job. He doesn't give Job everything back immediately. After Job prays an agonizing prayer, God comes down and says, you want to face me? Were you the one that created all this? Were you the one that knows? Were you the one that unfolds history? God confronts Job, and he's honestly a little bit rough with him at first. Because Job's forgetting God's character. Well, here in in Exodus, rather, God's revealing his character to his suffering people through Moses. This is what we need in our suffering most. We need to hear God's word, see his character. And this is ultimately what God does in history. In response to to the misery of the ages, 
God doesn't just snap his fingers like Thanos and wipe the thing clean again. That's not what he does. He did that once in the flood, but he saved a remnant. But now God came down in his son Jesus in response to the suffering of this world. He revealed himself through prophets and covenants and kings. But then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This account at Horeb is just a shadow, but Jesus is the reality. Jesus is this better burning bush where God doesn't just call out with the flames. God walked among us in the incarnation. I mean, when I was first really thinking about this text, I really was like, God, I would love for you to appear in like a burning oven to me. Like, that'd be so much better than reading this Bible. Like, I would take that seven days out of seven days of the week. But we have something better in the gospel of Jesus. We have something better as Christians. We get God himself coming down to earth to take our place on the cross. You don't need an experience. God doesn't have to show up in a flaming piano. He speaks his word about his son, and that's where he fully reveals himself. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and you claim to know him. You claim to read his word. You claim to pray to him. It's better than an experience at a burning bush. So this is why, you know, the manger in Bethlehem or the cross of Golgotha, this is why it's better than this experience here. So if you want to know what God's like, if you're getting bored in your faith, take a fresh look at Jesus. Look again at the cross. So I want to ask, what difference does this make in your life as a church? It's always a good question to ask. Um, what difference does this make for you? Brothers and sisters, this is the reason why you should not forsake gathering together as God's people. This is why you shouldn't forsake coming together week after week to worship him together. You have access to God through his word during the week, and praise God for that. We, we take it for granted, don't we? But he's told us something different happens when we come together as his people. Something unique happens. He actually says, my presence is among you when you gather in my name in a way that is different than on your own in your quiet time during the week. He's here among us, and on the Lord's day, when you receive his word, when you respond in praise, when you take the Lord's Supper like you will in a few moments, well, I may be preaching for a while, so when you take the Lord's Supper, that is where God's presence is coming into this world here in his church. God reveals himself in a compelling manner here in your midst and through you into your city. So if Corvallis wants to know, what is the God of heaven and earth like? They should look here at the branch or any other local church. Because you have the gospel given to you and you speak it, but God displays his wisdom and his glory and his gospel through your lives together as his church, as his people. In your lives together, the light of the gospel shines and God keeps revealing himself through you. So don't neglect or grow tired of coming here to meet with him and with each other. And I know COVID's made it so much harder and these masks make it harder, but he still meets with us either way. And you may look around now and wonder, wow, Austin, is this really it? A different church is building. We do have some stained glass windows, which are nice. But is this really the manifold wisdom of God right here? Well, this is very ordinary, but it's supernatural at the same time when you meet as his people. God reveals himself through his son. And in our suffering, he keeps revealing himself through the church, through one another in our lives. 
So you aren't just here to read and pray and talk and give and go. You're here for something more than that. No, through us, through this meeting, this is like the burning bush flaming every week, every Sunday morning. God reveals himself here, and if you lose sight of that, you'll fall short of what you're meant to be as his church here in Corvallis. And I know that it's, it's in this church's DNA to love college students and welcome them in, and it's great that most of you are sitting right here so I can stare at you. But um, I know that it's October, so it's, it's not the first weekend where there's maybe a lot of students, so you guys may be the remnant who are going to hang around, but it's probably getting a lot harder to come here every week at this point in the semester. And it's, this may be the thing you wanted to leave behind when you left home. You may not have wanted to come back to a building like this ever again. And college ministries are wonderful, and God used one in my life at Ole Miss, but the best thing that happened to me in college was when I joined Grace Bible Church. I really loved the student union, the Baptist student union, and I attended a lot of churches, but I never became a member of one. I had no plans to commit to one. It made no sense if I was going to leave in three years. But God used the ministry of that church in a powerful way in my life. And it was different after I committed to that church and I became a part of it through membership. So I'm not just saying, like, the burning bush is awesome, membership is better, become a member. That's not the line I'm drawing for you. But if you want to actually know the living God and get to know him better, commit to a local church where God displays his glory every single week. It's worth it. This is where he does his work. Something different happens here than at a conference or at some other kind of meeting. This is where he reveals himself. And for the rest of the church, I want to encourage you to keep loving and serving college students. Keep doing that hard work to inconvenience yourself to make them feel welcome. And honestly, a similar application we made to young parents, it's hard for college students to come to church. It's hard for us to come to church every week. Like, I never knew how hard it was to get to church until a nine-month-old was in my way. They make it hard to get out the door. They make it hard to pay attention to worship service when you have to take them from the kids' ministry because they freaked out. It's difficult. It could be a hard season to stay committed, but this is for your good. This is where God will sustain you among his people, so keep coming. So, um, I should move on. I've harped on that for longer than I needed to. So, when God revealed himself to Moses, he sent him to lead and gather God's people. So, Moses didn't pitch a tent and then stream Yahweh episodes at the Burning Bush Smart TV after that. So, I meant to say that earlier. I really like the way I said that. <laughs> this is why you should gather in person. Um, yeah, so, when his people suffer, God draws near and reveals himself. And now, we see, well, God doesn't just come down and say, I am the Lord, but he reveals his plan next. This is how he responds. So don't forget God remembers, God reveals, and now three, God rescues. God rescues. Let's look at verses 7 through 12 one more time. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, 
the children of Israel out of Egypt. Excuse me. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So, in verses 9 through 10, and really in this section as a whole, God makes it clear another time. He's driving the point home. He's heard his people's cry, and he's acting because he's seen their affliction. It's coming again and again. This is why God is acting. That's the emphasis here. He's responding to his people's pain. The Lord has come down to rescue them from the power of Egypt and bring them to a good land. So, the, the biggest thing going on in this passage is not the burning bush is crazy. It's God's going to deliver his people from Egypt. He's sending his servant to deliver them and bring them out to a good land. He sees and he hears, and now he initiates his rescue operation. We're talking about one of the grand moments of fulfillment in the Bible. What Genesis was straining towards and pointing ahead to is coming to pass here in Exodus. Abraham's descendants are a nation, but they're suffering. They're not really a nation because they're oppressed and enslaved. And is God going to abandon them? No. He's going to rescue them from the power of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. So I just want to drive this home in your head. This is the pattern. God's people are in misery. They cry out. God reacts. He says, I'm going to come down and deliver. And then he sets apart a servant to go and deliver his people. So this is, this is the thing. God, he doesn't just understand our pain. Like his shoulders are broad enough to cry on, and he, he can take that. And his chest is broad enough to beat on in your pain. But his arm is strong enough to then save and pull you out. God doesn't just see and understand. He rescues. It's glorious that the maker of heaven and earth takes any interest in us at all. That's wonderful. But God hearing and knowing means he's going to be redeeming. He's going to be rescuing. He's going to be bringing his people out. And so for us as Christians, this is why we cling to the hope of redemption. We cling to it. I know that theology and doctrine can seem like cold and honestly irrelevant remedies in your actual life. But the hope of Christianity is that our trials here and now, they're not the end of the story. The shape of our life and our identity is not defined by our pain and our struggles. We won't stay in Egypt forever. God has not forgotten. He's the God who rescues. The shape of our life is an Exodus story. God's going to bring us out. Although we're rejected in this world, we're pilgrims here, we're strangers and aliens, we're far from home with Jesus in heaven, but God has not forgotten us. The cross feels like it was a long time ago. So long ago. But that doesn't mean that God is not going to complete redemption. Doesn't mean that. From our point of view, it feels that way and looks that way. And that's why you have to look back to the objective truth of Scripture that God is going to finish his work. He's going to do it. God observes our misery and spiritual bondage and sin in this world under the enemy's oppression. He sees our groaning under the curse. And in the same way that he sent Moses to rescue, Jesus came down to rescue us from the power of sin and Satan in this world. He came down to take our place. That's how he rescues. 
He's a better master, and he offers a lighter yoke than our idols or ourselves. God sent Moses to call the people out of Egypt to judge Egypt and redeem. God sends Jesus to rescue us from this world by bearing the curse of this world for us. He doesn't just hear the pain and groaning. He comes out and says, I'll take it. Put the pain and groaning on me. I will take it. Jesus takes our sin and our condemnation, and we take his life and his blessing and his righteousness. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's sent by God to deliver us through better signs and wonders at the cross. He leads a greater rescue than the one you're going to keep studying in the book of Exodus, and I hope to keep driving this home. He's going to rescue you. Now, when you often think about the gospel, you may think about, like, I'm justified. I'm declared righteous. That's what it means to be saved. Or you may think about, well, I'm reconciled to God. I was far away, and now he's brought me near. Well, in in Exodus, rescue is the great image of salvation. And it's one of the the most important ones for us to understand because we forget it. You can't save yourself from your sin. You don't just need a boost. You don't need just a stool so you can reach higher to, to get rid of the sin and find righteousness on your own. No, you and your sin were trapped. You were dead in your sin in the bottom of the ocean with no way out. And if you're a Christian, if you already believe this message, don't forget, you didn't just make some right choices. You didn't just all of a sudden hear the gospel and go, that's a better deal than what I'm doing, so I'll take that. No, God rescued you. He took you out of your affliction and bondage spiritually, and he's given you a new life in him. You've been rescued. So when the darkness of this world seems dark, I'll say darker again, and it's crowding back in, it'll make you wonder, well, have I been actually rescued or not? Because I'm still dealing with my sin. Well, we live here in this in-between place where rescue has begun, but it's not final yet. It's not complete yet, but when he comes again, the rescue will be complete and we'll leave this place. And in another sense, he'll actually bring heaven here. So we still groan here in this world. We still know these sorrows. We aren't home yet, but God hears our cries. He knows. And in the text, it drives home several times. I'm not just going to save you from Egypt and then, all right, go on, do whatever you want. Slavery was bad. Now you're no longer enslaved, so you're good. No, God says, I'm going to bring you to me in the promised land, a land that is good and flowing with milk and honey. I'm not just going to deliver you from your great problem. I'm going to give you abundance and life. Kind of like going back to the Garden of Eden, actually. He's going to bring them to this land, not their own, that they didn't work for, and he's going to give them his presence there. And for us as Christians, this is what I've been talking about heaven for. That's our promised land, our land flowing with milk and honey. It's the good and spacious land where all tribes and nations will be washed in the blood of the Lamb and will gather together to worship Him. A land flowing with the goodness and sweetness of God. And until He brings us home to heaven, He's promised to be with us and He sent His Spirit to dwell in us as a guarantee. And we have that hope because God remembers His covenant. He remembered the one with Abraham. He's going to fulfill it through the new covenant and we are in that by faith. Don't forget, God's not just going to deliver us from our our anxieties and our problems here. He's going to give us new life with him in heaven. That's what we long for. So this is why your prayer life shouldn't just be about all the things you want and need, which are good. 
God, I want you. I want you. He's going to not only free us from sin and hell, but he's going to give us himself. So God announces his plan in this passage, but it hasn't happened yet. He revealed it to Moses, and he sent Moses as a deliverer, but the people are still enslaved. But the emphasis is that God's choice to rescue, his plan to rescue, changes everything. Yeah, they're still in Egypt, but God's revealed his plan, and that has changed everything. We're on the other side of of the cross in history, and we haven't seen everything fulfilled yet. But our hope is like Moses' hope here, that God's announced redemption, so I know for certain it's going to happen. And that's where our hope is. Since God has announced it, I know it's going to happen. God has come down and announced his kingdom in Christ, and we live in light of it while we wait for it. So verses 9 and 12 make it really clear that Israel's hope isn't in Moses. He's like, who am I? Why are you doing this with me? I'm nobody. Well, that, that's really the point. Israel didn't need to revolt against Egypt to escape freedom. They honestly couldn't. They needed rescue and liberation. And they go on to forget that. And Moses is reminding them that they're saved by grace. And he sent me to bring deliverance. So, uh, Moses is a, a nobody in a sense, but he becomes a great somebody through this story. But how does God actually calm Moses' fears? This is going to be a long conversation with Moses raising objections, but notice what God tells him in our text today is that I'm going to go with you. I will be with you. The, the point is not, Moses, you're ready for this. It's I, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant-keeping God, I'm going through you, I'm sending you, I'm the one doing this. And the text is making that super clear. And then God gives him a sign so that Moses can know that God sent him. And honestly, this was something that I just, I couldn't help but laugh at. The sign that God's going to keep his promise to Moses and deliver the people is you'll come back here one day and worship me here. So like the sign that the mission's going to work is that the mission's going to work. You know, the the sign that I'm going to keep the promise isn't like, at this point at least, take a staff and it's awesome. You're going to come back here. And when you come back here, you'll see the sign that I'm going to complete my work. So Moses isn't the hero of the story. The Lord is the hero of the story. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This isn't just about judging those that hurt others. This isn't just about getting Israel out of the clutches of slavery. This is about the people leaving so they can worship God and they can represent him to the world. He acts because he knows they're suffering and he hears their cries, but now it's so they can come and worship him again at this mountain. They're going to come back here and be with him. And that's kind of how 3.1 opens and how 12, it's a bookend kind of. There's this mountain of God in verse 1 and in verse 12, the mountain of God comes back. And it's this bookend that's telling us God's presence is what's most important in this story. His presence with his deliverer, but then the hope that he's going to give them his presence when they leave. And they're going to worship him and actually be able to worship him in his presence through his law and his sacrifice. So just one more question. Is your Christianity about you or is it about God and his presence? Is it about like, 
I'm great at reading my Bible and teaching people, or I'm great at leading worship and, and serving. I'm great at like a Christian life. I'm great at the Christian life. Or is your faith wrapped up in God has given us his presence. He's rescued and redeemed and given me new life, and I'm overwhelmed that he is with me and with this church and in this word. We are the redeemed by his grace. We are the beneficiaries of this great plan, but we aren't the point of the plan. And the problem with suffering is it makes us turn inward. Suffering kind of sears our mind a little bit. It makes us just focus in on our problems and our pains. But that's not what Christianity is about. It's we go upwards and outwards and look to God. The solution and remedy is crying out to him like they did. And even in our pain, God is working in our lives to make us more like him. And even if it's your whole life, the thing doesn't go away, the, the trial stays. That may be what he, he asks of you and what you have to go through. But your experience is more like the sheep in Psalm 23. He can take you through that dark valley, and you may not leave the dark valley, but he's with you in the valley. And your comfort in this life is that he is now with you. He's with you. So the wonder of Exodus is that God redeems his people and leads them so he can be with them. I feel like I've said that a hundred times already. And the wonder of the gospel is that God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, has made us alive in Christ. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ. Ephesians 2, 4-7. The wonder of Exodus is that God is not just going to end the problem. He's going to give them himself, and that's our experience as Christians. He hasn't just saved us from hell. He's given us himself, and he's going to give us heaven. We get him. And so at this point in the story, like I said a moment ago, and this is where we're going to end our time in a couple minutes, is that the announcement of the plan changes everything. We're still in the middle of the action God has revealed his plan to only one Israelite. The people don't know about it yet. But God's announcement that he's going to rescue and redeem changes everything. So don't forget who God is. He reveals himself to us. He comes down and he remembers us. I got that out of order. He remembers us. But he's going to rescue us. On the cross, he's defeated our greatest enemy. Then he's going to rescue us from the oppression and the, the frustrations of this life and give us a new one with him and a new heavens and a new earth. So we're just looking forward to that full rescue. We're looking forward to that full redemption, that full deliverance that is coming. So uh, the soldiers in that prison of war camp, they, they, they needed to have these kind of conversations and they just couldn't. But in their situation, their only hope was for the war to kind of turn in their favor. Like, if the enemy isn't going to get beat, then we're going to be killed by them, or worse, um, which some of them would have chosen death over what they were going through. But their situation changed the moment that the general of their army heard, we're pushing forth to Manila, but the enemy has been just killing everyone in these camps as we pass by. And there's another one full of our, our brothers in arms. And so although the fighting force is heading towards the capital, he decides, I'm going to send this company C of rangers 
and they're going to go execute the plan and rescue them. Because if, if we win the war but don't save them, we've still lost something. And right here in Exodus, God's done the same thing. I am going to save my people. He's revealed himself to Moses. He's revealed his plan. And that's changed everything in the book. So don't forget, God remembers, God reveals, and he will rescue. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness and that you have given your son to us, that through him you are revealed and we get to spend our lives getting to know you better through your son by your spirit. So God, we pray that uh, you would help us do that as we now come to take the Lord's Supper, that we would remember the gospel and as we consume the elements, we would feed on Christ. God, let that be something that drives us home, that we don't forget our hope, we don't forget redemption, but we look forward full of faith and full of joy. We thank you for speaking to us, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Confession uh, and assurance of pardon. And um, man, this is just such a special time for us every week. And there's just so much that goes on in any given week in our lives. Um, so many regrets, 